It was on December the 17th, 1903. Orville climbed on their little bi-wing airplane. Wilbur helped to start the engines. They warmed up and they rolled, then a plane rolled down that little wooden runway and it lifted off. It flew for 120 feet. Now, you know, this week I came into the sanctuary and I, I said, how far is that? From that wall here in our sanctuary to that wall is 123 feet. That's how far the first flight was. 120 feet. Historians say that the invention of the airplane was one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century and one of the inventions that changed the world. There were four flights on that first day. And at the end of that day, they traveled back home. Orville and Wilbur went back to Dayton. And they would spend the next year trying to improve the airplane to make it a, a commercial viable adventure. They worked in Huffman Prairie, eight miles outside of town. And yet the fascinating thing is the press never went out. Most of the people in the town never went out because nobody really believed they were flying. They knew it was impossible. And so in broad daylight and open sight, they continued to practice and improve and to learn and no one really was seeing them. They continued to tell the world, we're flying, but people didn't believe them. They were called frauds. They were called liars. At the, in 2005, they finally had gotten to the point that they knew they had the fly, Wright Flyer 3. It was a good airplane, and so they stopped flying. They wanted to get a patent on their plane, they wanted to find people who were interested, and so they set to work to try to get a patent. They set the plane aside. They became the businessmen, what they did. And you know that took more than two years? The place they finally found somebody interested was France because there were so many people who were trying to fly in France. Our government was kind of lukewarm, but the French were excited. And so it was that, that Wilbur packed up the right flyer and shipped it over to Europe, and there he began to reassemble it. Wil uh, Wilbur was there. Orville stayed home. He was going to try to fly if he could get the government here excited. And so it was on a Saturday, August the 8th, 1908. In Le Mans, France, Wilbur had reassembled the plane. He felt that things were finally right. A crowd assembled out on this field, and on that day, he finally looked at a few men, turned his hat around with the bill in the back, and said, Gentlemen, I'm about to fly. He climbed on the plane, they started the engine, they warmed it up, it came down the rail, he took off, and he flew all the way down to a hedge of trees, he banked, flew over the top of the grandstand, came around, gently banked, and landed almost from where he had taken off. The flight took two minutes, and it covered about two miles. For so long, people had said, they're liars, they're fakes, it's easy to say you can fly. They were there that day. Their mouths were hanging open. And they began to say, we were wrong. We were wrong. We are infants in flight compared to them. They have conquered the air. People rushed the field and they rushed the plane. They wanted to shake his hand, to kiss his cheeks. Suddenly, Wilbur Wright was a hero. 
The very next day, the headlines in the newspaper, right by flight shows his might. People begin to believe. Word spread everywhere about what the Wright brothers had accomplished. Day after day, Wilbur gave more demonstrations from 1,000, then 2,000, and 5, and then 10,000. Royalty started showing up. People could not believe what they were seeing. And so our government got a little more excited. And with Orville back at home, he then went to Virginia to start flying demonstration flights. And people were so stunned that whenever Congress heard he was going to fly today, they demanded a recess so they could go out and watch him fly. People finally, in 1908, came to understand the airplane had been invented. It was an exciting time till September the 17th. I told you how it was on that day that Orville was flying there in the field in Virginia near Washington, D.C. when the propeller disintegrated. The plane began to shake. The rudder came off. A catastrophic failure and the plane came down to the ground. He was carrying a passenger, Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge. When the plane crashed, he was killed. He became the first person to die as a passenger in an airplane flight. They weren't sure what was going to happen to Orville. He had lacerations, a broken leg, a broken hip, four broken ribs. It was two or three days before they could realize or decide whether they thought Orville would make it or not. It became one of those significant moments in their history and our history. How would the two brothers react to Orville almost dying? Because we all know that whenever you've come face to face with death, when you've come close to dying, when somebody you love has come close or has died, it changes the way that you look and live life. How would it change them? It will change you. Just ask Laura Karstensen. This summer, one of the books that I read was Being Mortal. Medicine and What Matters in the End. I highly recommend the book to you. In the book, he talks about Laura Karstensen. In 1974, she was 21 years old. She had an infant. She was going through a divorce. She had a high school education. And it turned out that one night she wanted to go to a concert with her friends, and she left the baby with her mom and dad to babysit. And she went to the concert, and when they were coming home, there was a bunch of them crammed into a VW bus, and they rolled the bus, and Laura was almost killed. She was brought to the hospital with lacerations to her head, internal bleeding, a broken leg. She would wind up being on the orthopedic floor for months. It would be three weeks. She would be in and out of consciousness, and they did not know whether she would live or die. When she finally came to... After three weeks, she started realizing how close she had come to dying. And at that point, she started thinking about her life so different. She had been so worried about a lot of things in the future. She was wondering about success and how to find a soulmate. There were so many things she had been thinking about and worrying about. But now that was no longer the important things. What she was focused on was loving her baby her mom and dad, her friends, living in the moment today because she realized she might have been 21, but you can die. 
It changes the way that you look at life. Now, at this point in Laura's life, she had no idea she could not have predicted the life she would ultimately live. But she did decide to invent it. She started thinking, what do I want to do with my life? It was her father who said, you need to get a college education. And so it was that he started going to school, there to local college, taping lectures on a cassette tape. That's what we did back in 1974. On a cassette tape, taking them to her in the hospital. She would read the book, listen to the lectures, and the professor helped her take her test. The first class she took was Introduction to Psychology. She listened to some of the things the experts were saying, and she agreed, and she listened to other things that she was living through, and she disagreed. And she decided she wanted to learn and do more research. She could never have predicted that in the next 15 years she would earn her Ph.D. She would be a professor at Stanford and doing all kinds of amazing research. One of the things that Laura came up with was an interesting idea. She said... How we seek to spend our time may depend on how much time we perceive ourselves to have. How we seek to spend our time may depend on how much time we perceive ourselves to have. She said, when you looked at young people, people in their 20s and in their 30s, they like to dream. They have their plans. They're working for the future. There is delayed gratification. You're open to making as many new friends as you can. That seems to happen when you're in your 20s and 30s. When you get in your 60s, 70s, 80s, well, it seems like people stop being open to getting newer friends and they hold with their old friends. We stop dreaming about the future and making our plans And our focus becomes on family, children, grandchildren, making memories in the present moment. But Laura came up with an interesting opinion. She said, I don't think that's about age. It's about perception. How much time do you perceive you have? For what they found was when you went back to the 20 and 30 year olds who get cancer or they're dying of AIDS... If there's something that they have and they realize their time is short, it's interesting how young people start making the decisions of old people. They start focusing on the moment, loving people, taking time to make memories, to be with those they care about. And what they found was they got a a group of older people and said, what if we told you today a doctor had found a pill that if you took it, you were guaranteed another 20 years then what are the things you would choose to be doing? And they found that the old people chose to be like the young. The issue isn't age. It's perception of how much time we have. I believe that's what Jesus was talking about with his disciples today. How much time do you have? You see, the disciples believed that the end of the world was near. The end is coming. And when Jesus said, you see that temple? There isn't going to be a rock left standing on top of one another. They immediately knew the end was coming. And they said, can you tell us when it will be? What will be the signs? They wanted to predict the future. And what did Jesus say to them? Nobody knows. 
Not the angels, not the Son of Man. No one knows. So what I tell you is, live well in this moment and watch because no one knows how long you have. As I read through that, it occurred to me that really what is going on here is we're being reminded there's not one way you live when you're young and one way when you're old. It is a matter of choice. It is perception of how much time do I have, but you and I have choice to be able to say, I got a dream, something worthy to give my life to, and I'm going to choose to live in this moment to live and to love fully each and every day. And you have to do both if you're going to invent the future. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Inventing the Future. Alan Kay reminded us, it is easier to invent the future than it is to predict it. You and I can invent the future. I think Jesus tells us two important things we have to do. First of all, we must maintain our dreams in the future. It is the dreams in the future that help to give our life meaning in the present. You know, it's interesting when you look at Orville and you look at Wilbur. They had the crash. He almost died. The question is, what would they do? History tells us Wilbur kept right on flying. September, October, November, he still is flying. And more and more people are talking. You see, the Wright brothers wanted to inspire people. They wanted to show it is possible to fly. It is a dream. It was in November that Wilbur was being honored at a big banquet for all the people who were celebrating what was happening. And I want to read you what he said. This is two months now after Orville almost died. I sometimes think that the desire to fly after the fashion of birds is an ideal handed down to us by our ancestors, who in their grueling travels across trackless lands and prehistoric times looked enviously on the birds soaring freely through space at full speed, above all obstacles, on the infinite highway of the air. Scarcely ten years ago, all hope of flying had almost been abandoned. Even the most convinced had become doubtful. And I confess that in 1901 I said to my brother Orville that men would not fly for 50 years. Two years later we ourselves were making flights. This demonstration of my inability as a prophet gave me such a shock I have ever since distrusted myself and refrained from all predictions of the future. But it's not really necessary to look too far into the future. We see enough already to be certain that it will be magnificent. Only let us hurry and open the roads. The future will be magnificent. Let us hurry and open the roads. Orville had almost died. It didn't change the dream at all. You see, Wilbur and Orville had made an agreement early on they would never fly together. They knew this was risky. And they said, we will not fly together so that if one of us is killed, the other one can continue on. To have a dream worth giving your life to, a vision 
something that calls you forward to sacrifice and give, that gives your life meaning. Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. It would be a dream worth giving their lives for. You know, this summer, I told you how Marsh and I had traveled to England to follow in a chronological order John Wesley's life, the founder of the Methodist Church. One of the places we went was Bristol. Bristol is on the western side of England. It's a seaport. And it's fascinating that it's Bristol where so many slave trading ships begin to originate. In the 1700s, the slave trading was increasing. England was such a significant part of that. And many of those ships would set sail from Bristol to get the slave to deliver them, get cargo and come back to England. Wesley, I told you, had also traveled on horseback in his lifetime a quarter of a million miles on horseback riding through England, preaching more than 40,000 sermons four and five times a day, every day throughout the week. When Wesley was in his 70s, he began to see that this thing, slavery, was really growing. And he wrote a pamphlet on my thoughts on slavery. And he really attacked it. In his 70s, he kept riding on horseback throughout England and preaching. And now he began preaching against slavery throughout England. When he was 85, he rode on horseback out to Bristol. And he went to what's called the New House, the New Room, it was the, a building that they had built in Bristol for worship for the Methodist. And it's fascinating if you go there, there are no windows in that building. And that's because Methodists were being attacked. They didn't want to draw attention, so there's no windows in the building. And so Wesley comes and half of the group called Methodist are probably making a living on, on slavery. And the other half are growing ever stronger against it as Wesley's been preaching about it. And so he shows up when he's 85 years old and he preaches a sermon there at the New Room attacking slavery. And it so excited and infuriated the people that a fight broke out. Not just kind of a fight, I mean a brawl. He will write in his diary, everybody was participating and they were smashing the pews. Now I got to tell you, when I turn 85... I hope that I'm still passionate about something and a good enough preacher that I can start a riot. <laughs> 85 years old, still passionate about something, and he is calling it out. At 87, he would die. The last letter he would write would be to William Wilberforce, encouraging him to keep up his fight against slavery. John Wesley would not live to see slavery end in England or in the United States. But he had a dream, a vision, a passion of something bigger than himself. This group called Methodist fighting against slavery. Something that called him forward that was bigger than himself. It's what gives meaning to your life. One of the things we learn is... It comes easy and natural when you're in your 20s and 30s to have a dream. It's important all of your life. For us all, you need to have a vision, a dream worth giving your life to. Something bigger than yourself because that's what gives meaning to your life. It's how you start to invent the future.
But secondly, it is important to live the future today because it's all you got. You have this moment, this time. Don't forget to love, to live, to be present in this moment as you work for the future. Orville would crash the airplane September the 17th, 1908. He almost died. Six weeks in the hospital with Catherine, finally back home for four months in Dayton. He could finally walk with a cane and he got on a ship with Catherine and sailed to France to go over to be with Wilbur and all the excitement going on in France. They went to Paris and then they caught a train to go south in France where Wilbur was giving flying demonstrations and on the way there was a, pl- a train wreck. A train wreck. I mean many people were hurt, some were killed. The car they were in saved them and they were thrown around and bruised but not seriously hurt. When they would finally get to the south of France, they were being treated like hero and royalty by now. It had been months People could not believe these two men were flying. More than anybody in the world, they were doing it. And so one of these rich people had a chauffeur in a wonderful car, an automobile, which was still new. And this chauffeur wanted to show him how fast he could go. And he was driving the car and came around a corner and lost control and wrecked the car and totaled it. And miraculously, the rights walked away unscratched again. In a year's time... Orville had been in a plane crash, a train wreck, and a car wreck. If anybody was being reminded of the idea, you can die, as Orville. He got the message. And it's interesting to see what it did to him. They had their dream. They kept on working hard. They were willing to give their lives for it. But they also lived in the moment. We know from their diaries with Catherine and Orville and Wilbur, they took the time to enjoy France, to make memories just the three of them together, to love the day, to live the moment. They talk about the memories that they were making. Their father, Bishop Wright, was even a little concerned about the temptations in Paris, and he wrote his two sons, you be careful about those temptations in Paris. And Orville wrote back and said, Father, we are being very good. We have been in lots of big churches, and we have yet to get drunk. (laughs) They were living in the moment. And it was such a great time in 1909 there in Paris. But if you read in their diaries back when they were in Kitty Hawk in 1901 and 02 and 03, when they were so cold and then so hot and the mosquitoes attacked, Orville would write at the end of that event and say, this has been some of the happiest days of our lives. To know joy as you pursue the future. To still live the moment. To see the moment. To be grateful in that moment. It's easy to forget. One of the other books that I read this summer was Elon Musk. SpaceX, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. I've told you about how Elon Musk you know, was in his 20s and 30s from South Africa. His vision is for us to go colonize Mars. I used to would have said that's impossible. I don't say that anymore. So many things are happening. He's invented a rocket company, resupplying the International Space Station. 
He wants to recolonize Mars. He created Tesla, the automobile, an amazing automobile, all electric car. He is working so hard on these amazing things. And now Tesla is working on an autonomous car. That is a driverless car. A car that you can climb in and say, this is where I want to go, and it will take you. No driver. When I was working on this sermon, Friday morning, I was watching the financial news networks, and I heard it announced that Apple had applied to California for a license to start having their driverless car on the roads in California. We don't know what it looks like, but Apple is now asking for the driverless car. Tesla's working on it. Apple's working on it. Mercedes, Honda, Nissan. But Google already has it. They've had a driverless car for four or five years. I I don't know if you know this. The driverless car is not an idea. It's something that exists. They've had a number of cities where they've gotten permission to be able to have a driverless car. And you see someone who's blind come out and climb in the car and say, this is where to go, and the car takes off and drives them there. Google's driverless car, they have multiple cars in different cities. Their cars have accumulated 1.8 million miles driven. 1.8 million miles have been driven by driverless cars. They've been in 12 accidents. They've all been minor. And they've all been the fault of other drivers. It's been us who hit it from behind at a stoplight or a stop sign or sideswiped it. The driverless car has yet to cause an accident. The driverless car is a better driver than us, you and me. It exists. What an amazing things are going on. Tesla's trying to come up with their driverless car. And I was reading about Elon Musk and his passion, his vision, the companies creating... But I wondered, are you remembering to live today? Are you living in the moment and loving? Turned out that he had been married, and then he divorced his first wife, the mother of his five children. Got married a second time, and then divorced that wife. And then he remarried her a second time, and then divorced her again. As I was reading through the book, he seemed to be struggling in in relationships and a sense of balance in his life. His first wife talks about how she sensed that they were growing further and further apart as he was so passionate about the company and these dreams and the vision for the future. And one night while they were dancing, he said, you know, you really need to up your game. And she said, I am not one of your employees standing for evaluation. And he said, I know, and that's a good thing, because if you are, I would fire you. Ooh. Yeah, that, that, that marriage didn't last. No, when he started dating, he found that it wasn't going too well. He was kind of struggling with some of the dating scene. And so he started talking to some of his friends and asking, I mean, how much time does a woman require per week? I mean, how much time do I need to make available for a woman in my life each week? He finally figured out the answer. And the answer was 10 hours. 10 hours a week. That's what I'll set aside and carve out of my schedule for a relationship with a woman. I bet you're glad to know that today. That's what it takes for us to make our relationships go. Ten hours a week. He's been struggling. you got a dream. But you can forget to live in the moment. To live and to love. To live now. Because you don't know how long you have. When you look at Jesus, 
the one who came with the greatest calling, vision, mission of all time, the Savior of the world. You have Jesus come. And there's so much to say and so much to do. And yet you find him sitting down on a well in a Samaritan town. And a woman who's been rejected and ostracized by the community comes in late afternoon. And he asks her for a drink. And it leads to a conversation that will change her life. Another day he is going down the road having an important theological discussion with the Pharisees. And as they're going along, a blind beggar calls out and they say, don't bother him. And Jesus stops the crowd and comes over to the blind beggar and says, what do you want me to do for you? Let me see. And Jesus heals him. Another day he is hurrying from one place to the next place with the disciples. And here come the women, for heaven's sakes, bringing their babies, wanting him to bless them. And the disciples are saying, do not bother them. We're in a hurry. And Jesus hears them and he goes over and sits down on a rock and says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he takes the children in his arms and he blesses them. The one who had such a calling and a vision and would give it his all was someone who also had time to stop each day to live in the moment. I believe that's what Jesus' message is for his disciples, and I believe it's his message for you and me. You need a dream. You need to be committed to a dream all the days of your life, a dream worth giving your life to. And you never need to forget to live in this moment, to live and to love in this moment, because you do not know how much time you have. Watch. That's how you invent the future. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.